0: Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou. I'm here in the studio normally with my co-host Michelle Witty, but she is on vacation today. There's a lot to tell you about today. A lot. You know, usually Fridays are relatively slow. Europe is six or seven hours ahead of us, five in the case of the UK, and their days are... Already winding down by the time we get started, but today is one of those days that it's really genuinely busy. I'm going to start by telling you about an unfortunate uh, incident in Donetsk today. More than 50 Ukrainian prisoners of war were killed this morning, and at least 75 were wounded when a missile ripped through a prison in Donetsk. Ukraine accused Russia of firing the rocket, while the Russians accused the Ukrainians. The Russian military also released a video showing the remains of a HIMARS rocket launcher that may have been used in the strike. At least 16 people are dead in flooding in Kentucky, and just a few minutes before the show started, the governor of Kentucky said that the death, that the death toll will go much higher. Uh, there's been a series of floods in eastern Kentucky and western Virginia, Uh much, much more rain than, uh, than is normal for this time of the year. And uh, many of these low-lying communities just were not prepared for the runoff that came down from the mountains. That's what, ha- what happened in Kentucky. Again, 16 people are dead there. And, uh, and that death toll is going to go much higher. It turns out that it wasn't just the Secret Service that deleted text from uh, January 6th. Donald Trump's Secretary of Homeland Security and Acting Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security also deleted their text messages from that day. DHS knew about the deletions in February of 2021, and they did nothing to retrieve them or to inform the oversight committees that the text messages had been deleted. That kind of sounds like conspiracy to me. But that's just me. I wanted to tell you about an execution that took place in the state of Alabama last night. A man named Joe James, back in the early 1990s, 1994 to be precise, followed a woman home by the name of Faith Hall. Uh, His intent was to rob her. When he got to her home, he shot her three times and he killed her. He was quickly captured, convicted of murder, and sentenced to death. Over the years, the intervening years, and this was a long time ago, this is what, 28 years ago, uh, Faith Hall's children came to the conclusion that they did not, this want, that they did not want this man to be executed. Uh, his daughter, her daughter rather, said, as I got older and I became a mother myself, I had to realize you can't walk around with hatred in your heart. In order for me to live a prosperous life, I had to forgive him. So she and her brother and their uncle, who was the victim's brother, uh, petitioned Alabama Governor Kay Ivey uh, asking that she stop the execution. Uh, Governor Ivey denied their request. And, uh, and James was executed by lethal injection last night at the William C. Holman Correctional Facility in Atmore, Alabama. Uh, the only statement that came out of the government was justice has been served. Joe James was put to death for the heinous act he committed nearly three decades ago, the cold-blooded murder of an innocent young mother, Faith Hall. Um, With that said, more and more states in this country are having this debate about whether or not we want to continue killing people. Now, states like Oklahoma, which we told you a few weeks ago, is planning to execute 25 people between August and, um, and the end of the year have made their decision. Others uh, are looking to the rest of the world. And, you know, we see that of uh, industrialized Western or Western-oriented countries, only the United States and Japan execute people. Um, you know, do we want to be lumped in with Iran, North Korea? Uh, places like Saudi Arabia? I don't. And I think that's a debate we should be having. Uh, Speaking of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman um, is on a tour of Europe. Now, the reason this is important is several fold. Number one, no Western leader would meet with Mohammed bin Salman until Joe Biden did two weeks ago. When Joe Biden gave MBS that fist bump. It opened the door for other European leaders to meet with him and to begin his rehabilitation, because that's really what this is. It's a political rehabilitation. In fact, the Washington Post even says, Saudi crown prince engages in long handshake with President Macron on rehabilitation tour. Day before yesterday, MBS was in Greece, shaking hands with Prime Minister uh, uh, Mitsotakis. Again, it's just me, but either the guy is a bloodthirsty murderer uh, who contributes nothing to civilized society, those were the words of uh, of Joe Biden during the campaign, or he's not. And either we're going to be champions of human rights or we're not. Either we're going to protect American citizens and American permanent residents, green card holders. Or we're not. We can't do both. And uh, no matter how hard Joe Biden tries, um, he's not. There was a a troubling story coming out of Seattle last night. Uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal said that there was a man in front of her house last night uh, shouting obscenities and um, waving around a pistol. So she called police, and they arrived at her home and arrested Brett Forsell, aged 49. He, um, he was yelling obscenities, and, it fir- and they, they thought at first he may have fired a pellet gun at her house. Turned out to not be a pellet gun. It was an actual gun, although they didn't find any evidence that he had uh, actually fired it but he was screaming for Congresswoman Jayapal to go back to India and he was threatening to kill her and her family. So Forsell has been arrested on quote suspicion of committing a hate crime. He's been released from jail and then he was arrested again because he went back to her house to scream more. And so they've added a stalking charge. Uh, In an interview with federal agents, it says that he acknowledged that he had shouted profanities at Jayapal's residence, uh, but he denied stepping on the property. He denied shouting death threats, and he denied being a racist. He couldn't explain what he meant by go back to India. Uh, And his defense is something that we hear all the time. He told investigators that that he was so drunk that he doesn't really remember what he did and he suffers from mental health issues. So his bail is now set at $500,000. Authorities say that he's likely to commit a violent offense if he goes free. And he has said, get this, that he would return to Jayapal's home as soon as he's released. He actually said that to the cops. So the judge instituted something called an extreme risk protection order. Uh, so that he cannot have access to firearms. Good luck with that. We'll see how that goes. Trader Joe's in Western Massachusetts um, became the first of 500 Trader Joe's in America to unionize. They did that yesterday. They, uh, they took a vote, and the vote was overwhelming. Overwhelming. They are now represented by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. And, uh, and now the idea is this is going to encourage other employees of other Trader Joe's outlets around the country to begin unionization efforts. It says here in the Washington Post today that the union's victory follows a wave of successful union drives this year at high-profile employers that have long evaded unionization. And we've talked about them here on the show. We're talking about Amazon and Apple and Starbucks and REI. Uh, well, it looks like that's exactly what's happening. This is something of a, this is something of a, a domino effect. Uh, and as we're speaking now, there are other Starbucks outlets around the country that are also uh, beginning unionization efforts. I wanted to tell you, especially those of our listeners and viewers who live in the Washington, D.C. area, if um, if you've ever traveled by train, the only way to do it is through Washington's Union Station. Right. It's been there since the 19th century. It's an awesome place to catch a train. It really is. But it's been having some problems. Uh, First of all, it was hit hard by covid. And as a result, um, a whole bunch of the, of the stores and the outlets in the train station have shut down. Now, this is a station that decorates beautifully at Christmas. The Norwegian embassy every year puts up this uh, train model train display, and it looks like the Norwegian countryside with mountains and fjords and stuff like that. It's really great. Uh, the main room where you enter into union station is, uh, one of the largest single rooms in the world. And for many years, it was the largest room in America. You can lay the Washington monument down on its side and it would fit in the main entryway of union station. It's gigantic, 96 foot ceilings, uh, sculptures and statues all over the place. But over the last few years, it's become, um, one of the biggest draws for homeless people in Washington. It was once a vibrant gateway to Washington, D.C., and now it's just a sad, broken-down, falling-apart, neglected 19th-century building. Well, just to show you how bad things are getting, one of the busiest places inside Union Station is the Starbucks. No surprise there. People go to the station early in the morning. They're waiting for their train. Here's Starbucks right there at the gates. Everybody lines up. By far, it's the busiest place inside the train station. Starbucks announced yesterday that it is shutting down uh, that outlet, not because it's not making money, it's making tons of money. But it says that it's become so dangerous inside the train station that they just can't expose their employees to that kind of a threat anymore. Um, I can tell you, and I travel by train all the time because it's so much easier to get to New York by train or Philadelphia by train than it is by, by plane or, or by bus, which is awful. But um, this, is a, this is a blow. Uh, it, it just shows you that the city can't ignore uh, it's homeless problem any longer. It has to do something to help these people. It's not up to the train station to provide housing for them. And many people that live inside the train station are uh, are mentally ill. And so it's, in my view, it's the government's uh, responsibility to help those people. I think maybe we've hit bottom. One other thing to tell you, Jared Kushner, the former um, uh, Trump uh, senior advisor and uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law is coming out with a, with a new book. It's one of these tell-all books. And uh, CNN, for whatever reason, has gotten exclusive rights to serialize it. I don't understand that at all. But Kushner is not pulling any punches. He says uh, in, in today's installment that he clashed so severely with Steve Bannon uh, that uh, Bannon threatened to break him in half. At one point, Uh, he also says that Donald Trump's first chief of staff shoved Ivanka Trump so hard one time during an argument that she fell down. Can you imagine? So uh, I think we're going to get a lot more news out of this book as uh, as more and more comes out. Actually, I think it's going to be kind of fun. All righty, it's 1215. On this beautiful Friday here in Washington, we're going to take a short break and welcome our first guest, Peter Kuznick. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. The Washington Post today has a front-page article with a curious headline. It says, quote, Ukraine could be turning the tide of war again as Russian advances stall, unquote. This seems to be an ongoing theme in the American media, that the Russians are stalled, they're confused, they're suffering setbacks and unable to keep up their supply chain. Any war, of course, is unfortunate, but propaganda that supports one side over the other using inaccurate analysis really doesn't serve anybody. We keep hearing about the Russians being stalled and the tide turning, but is it really? Or is it a narrative being used to perpetuate unlimited amounts of aid, weapons, and materiel to Ukraine? We're joined by Professor Peter Kuznick. He's a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University and in Washington he's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books including The Untold History of the United States and Beyond the Laboratory: Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. Welcome back Peter. Hey
1: John, good to be with you.
0: Thanks so much for joining us Peter. <laughs> I I would appreciate your thoughts on these reports that we see with some regularity, mostly in the New York Times and the Washington Post, um, about the tide of the war changing. It's never clear what these reports are based on. And I fear that the point of them is to convince policymakers or to convince the American people that victory is right around the corner. And all we need to do is send more arms and more missile systems and Ukraine is going to win. We got the same kind of reporting for years in Afghanistan. We got the same kind of reporting before that for many years in Vietnam.
1: What are your thoughts? Well, John, I think you're right. I think that this is part of the propaganda war. Right now, there's a propaganda war going on by both sides, and the Washington Post, as it has been in Iraq and Afghanistan and other wars, is in the forefront of this. That article that you cite in today's Washington Post is really quite interesting, because who is the expert who they're relying on for this analysis? It's George Barros. That's right. uh, Who they describe as a geospatial and Russian analyst with the Institute for the Study of War. What is the Institute for the Study of War? It's a neocon think tank it was founded in 2007. It's financed by all the leading defense contractors. The members of his board uh, are, include representatives of Raytheon, Microsoft, Palantir, GM, General Dynamics, Kirkland, and Ellis. They, they might not all be on now, but they all have been on, and most are still on there. It was founded by Kimberly Kagan. Does the name Kagan mean something to you? (laughs) And certainly, I'm sure it does, because she turns out that she studied at Yale. Uh, She met her husband, Frederick Kagan, at Yale, uh, another leading neocon with the American Enterprise Institute. He's the son of Donald Kagan, the historian, and he's the brother of Robert Kagan, Robert Kagan is the leading neocon thinker who founded the Project for a New American Century. So these people are the hawks. And they, uh, in many ways, are to the right of the Biden administration when it comes to foreign policy. And so the fact that George Barrows, who's um, affiliated with the Institute for the Study of War— is the principal source who's quoted in this article, which then goes on to hedge a little bit anyway. But this is a line that we see coming out. Who else is expressing this in The Washington Post? Op-ed yesterday by Max Boot, our friend Max Boot. Oh, yes. He's been prolific lately. Yeah. and, And I mean, these people, what are they calling for? Like they did in other military confrontations, they're calling for increased US involvement, like they wanted in Syria, like they called for. I mean, uh, this Kimberly Kagan was on the Crystal staff. She was one of the leading spokespeople and in, in supported the surge in Iraq. So these, these, these are who they are, you know. And if you look at the other members of the board of the Institute for the Study of War, We're talking about, it's chaired by General Jack Keane. Uh, It includes also Bill Kristol, who along with Kagan founded the Project for New American Century. Former Senator Joseph Lieberman, who ran as a vice presidential candidate for the Republicans. Uh, I mean, this this David Petraeus, this is who we're dealing with. This is the neocons who were not sufficiently disgraced by what they did in in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, and elsewhere, they've come back. These people never die and they never go away and they never lose credibility. And so they're back now in the Washington Post urging the Americans to continue ignoring diplomacy, sending more and more weapons because the HIMARS are so successful that now the Russians are stalled and they're gonna be defeated and Ukrainians are are now going to mount a counteroffensive on Kherson, and pretty soon the Russians are going to be driven out of Ukraine. I mean, that's wishful thinking, but it's not what's really happening on the ground. Yeah,
0: you know, I have to tell you, I, I've I've told this story uh, on the air before, but I have to tell you again. I went to Afghanistan in two thousand nine with John Kerry, and as soon as we arrived, uh, they they ushered us into this uh, classified briefing room. And it was a table full of, ge- of generals, had to be a dozen generals there from one to four stars. And they had a, a, a PowerPoint presentation ready for us. And, and the bottom line of this PowerPoint re- presentation was, we're winning. We just need another year, a couple more billion dollars, we can win this thing. And we came out of the meeting and Kerry said to me, we may actually win this. And I said, but we're not going to win it. They've been giving this briefing since 2001. It's always another year and another few billion dollars. We're not going to win it. We don't even control Kabul for heaven's sake. Well, I get the same impression that this is what people are telling each other in Washington right now about uh, Ukraine.
1: And they didn't listen to you then. (laughs) They're not not listening to us now. Um, and it's very frustrating, and it's also very dangerous right now because this kind of escalation that so many people in the U.S. are pushing, including people right around Biden. I mean, Biden surrounded himself with these hawks. He's got 18 top advisors from the Center for New American Security. And it's not only in terms of – they're not only hawks when it comes to Russia. They're hawks when it comes to China. And so we have very dangerous situations, not only in terms of Ukraine and Russia, but also now with Pelosi's planned trip to Taiwan and, and what that's likely to lead to. I uh, mean, I'm glad that Biden and Xi Jinping spoke on the phone yesterday for more than two hours, but there is no diplomacy going on. There is no diplomacy at all, no, no push for diplomacy when it comes to uh, uh, Ukraine right now, well, that that
0: actually was my next question to you. You you follow these issues both diplomatically and in the media closer than anybody I know, and I was curious as to whether or not you had seen any indication that any diplomacy was was afoot, whether it's between the Russians and the Ukrainians or somebody else and the Chinese, so the Chinese can weigh in with the Russians or the Turks and the Russians or anybody at all. Are you seeing any diplomacy?
1: I mean, there was diplomacy early on mm-hmm. and it did look somewhat promising until Bucha. Uh, right. And then after the atrocities were discovered in Bucha, and both sides are making accusations uh, with these, about the war crimes. But there certainly have been war crimes on both sides in this war. Uh, but after, they people began to use Butcher as an excuse, saying that the Russians are such barbarians that we can't even talk to them anymore. Uh, and so there is not any diplomacy. Initially, you saw Macron aggressively pursuing this. We saw even Erdogan. There were people making sincere effort, but after Bucha, that avenue has been quiet and there is no real negotiation going on. I got onto Vladimir Solovyev's show last week in Russia, and Solovyev has described as the State Department as maybe the most energetic Kremlin propagandist around, but it's an enormously popular weekly show in Russia and i was surprised to get invited on there and i told them that if you want me on there i'd be happy to come and speak to the russian people but i'm a, i'm harsh, strongly critical of this invasion and i consider it a crime and illegal and immoral and uh, and they they said they want to have me on anyway so Soloviev starts off by ask by talking about the threat of nuclear war and then I use that to segue into the need for negotiations. Mm-hmm. We had a long talk for a half hour about the prospect for negotiations, which he didn't dismiss. His reputation is that he is like um, some of those um, talk show hosts who shout down their yes. their guests because they don't like what they're saying. He was not like that. We had a very civil, friendly discussion for a half hour about this. And I was saying that Putin has got to reach out to Zelensky, that initially Zelensky reached out to Putin, uh, that it's now Russia's turn, Russia did the invading, and I said that they clearly were provoked, but that does that not in any way justify this invasion, and that this has to end as quickly as possible, partly because of the recognition of the dangers of nuclear war, of this expanding. The other implication of what the people we started talking about in the Washington Post, the George Barroses and and the uh, Kagans and the other, is if they were right, and if we give these weapons to Ukraine, and Ukraine does start defeating Russia, as they fantasize about, what position does that put Putin in? They themselves recognize that if Russia's back is against the wall and thre- and defeat is threatening, that Putin will possibly and some of them say likely use nuclear weapons. So what are they trying to achieve? They're trying to achieve a nuclear war. They're trying to achieve World War Three. This has to end, and it has to end with diplomacy, which is the way all wars end. And you are and the people you're always negotiating with are the people you demonize. They're your enemy. But this is what's necessary. But the U.S. is so committed to degrading, embarrassing, weakening, eliminating Russia as a major player that Biden is effectively bringing on the Republicans to take over the United States. Biden and his administration says that these sanctions that the U.S. is imposing are. Blame it on the Russians, but these sanctions are having the effect of weakening the economy in a way in terms of inflation, higher gas prices, higher food prices uh, that that Biden's approval ratings are in the mid 30s. And so and it's largely because of the effects of this policy that's in place to punish Russia. So effectively, Mm -hmm. Biden is willing to allow Trump and the Republicans back into power in these midterms in 2024 in order to punish Russia in a way that he knows would destroy what's left of American democracy. This doesn't make any sense. You know, and the U.S. policy doesn't make any sense. Are we trying to provoke, put Russia in a position where they will lash out with nuclear weapons? No, nobody wants that. That's exactly what the effect is going to be if they succeed in what they're trying to do. But there is no diplomatic path right now. I'm encouraged by the fact that uh, uh, Pramila Jaipal, that chair of the Progressive Caucus, and Barbara Lee are calling for a diplomatic solution. They're they're circulating a letter to other members of Congress saying that we need to begin to push for diplomacy. We haven't seen that from the progressives so far. and That's been very disturbing. But now, finally, we're seeing some energy in that direction toward diplomacy good
0: good yesterday we reported on the biden administration's apparent offer to trade arms trafficker victor boot for Brittany Greiner and paul whelan it seems that officials at the white house and the state department are surprised that the russians haven't responded at least not formally uh we just heard a couple of hours ago from the associated press Uh, that uh, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, said that the Russians would be interested in having a conversation. And uh, now Secretary of State Tony Blinken will speak sometime today or more likely next week with Foreign Minister Lavrov. Can you help us understand what's happening here? These prisoner exchanges don't usually play out in public like this.
1: No, but this is a very public case because Brittany Reiner is – a well-known figure. I wish women's basketball got more attention than it does in the United States, but uh, she's a, a star, an Olympian, uh, uh, a, a champion, uh, terrific basketball player. And so the sports world has mobilized to make this a big public issue. Uh, the Russians are not happy about that. Peskov has said, we need to keep this quiet. We need to negotiate this quietly behind the scenes, as always happens with these kinds of prisoner exchanges. But this is a pretty outrageous case. I mean, it's appalling that she's being held in prison since February on charge. I mean, it's a charge that that we're finally realizing in the United States that people being held on these drug charges, how outrageous this is. And it's uh, outrageous that the Russians are holding Brittany Greiner. I'm glad that that blinken and Lavrov are going to talk. They haven't spoken since before this invasion began. yeah, they should be speaking on a regular basis. Uh, and so that's good. Let's make some progress on this. I don't know why the Russians would want that that guy back, you know, but um, but they apparently do, and uh, the Americans want Whalen back also. We did have some negotiations recently. There was a good uh, prisoner exchange. We got Trevor Reed back and we gave them Yaroshenko back. So uh, these things can work. And this one is one that's so obviously wrong and immoral that that uh, I would just to love to see her get back and get her, her life back. Couldn't agree more.
0: Uh, Peter, tell us a little bit about Washington's willingness to continue to provide virtually unlimited aid to Ukraine. There, hasn't been much in the way of a debate on Capitol Hill, and there are only small numbers of Republicans who vote no on these aid packages. Do you see any cracks forming on the Hill, or is this something we're just going to have to get used to?
1: There's not a lot of of, of hope or momentum right now, and it's partly because the media is so speaking with a single voice. And that's and that has been the case for a long time on foreign policy. We have big differences between the Democrats and Republicans on domestic policy. Um, But when it comes to foreign policy, there's been bipartisanship, uniformity of opinion for decades. And it's throughout the Cold War that was often the case. And uh, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, that's again been the case. That's why I mentioned that Jaipal and Lee calling for a diplomatic solution is such an important development. We've seen some Republicans. I, mean, I, think, I think it's ironic in a sense that Noam Chomsky said that there's only one politician, one major influential politician in Washington, who's pointing out the insanity of what's happening, what U.S. policy in Ukraine is, and that's Donald Trump. <laughs> but uh, And so some of the Trumpies partly because they're isolationists, partly because they don't want to see the U.S. spending any money to help anybody, uh, are, are opposing increased U.S. defense spending. But most people in Congress are in the pocket of the defense yeah. contractors yeah. and the lobbyists. And they always, I mean, this new U.S. military budget uh, is outrageous. Uh, and the defense contractors, if we look at the profiteering going on about the, the oil industry, uh, the gas industry, the defense industry. These people aren't opposed to war. They love war and it's making them even richer than they were before. This is obscene. You know, they refer to this, the Russian bout who they want back as a merchant of death. Well, in the 1920s and 30s, it was the defense contractors who were referred to as the merchants of death because of their obscene profiteering off World War I. And these people are all merchants of death. Uh, and they are the lowest of the low, the scum of the earth, the people who profit off the suffering and the killing and the devastation and the humanitarian outrage that's going on in Ukraine and elsewhere on the planet. So, again, the fact that there is so little push for negotiations, the idea, and, you know, and, and, and I've seen this firsthand because I've done a number of shows with Ukrainian members of parliament, mm-hmm. discussions. Uh, and, and I was talking to my friend Paul Jay, who does excellent interviews just a couple of days ago. And Paul said that he recently interviewed three leading Ukrainian leftists. Ukrainian progressives. And what they said is exactly what the Ukrainians who I've been hearing from have been saying, and that's that they are not going to give up one inch of Ukrainian territory ah. for a negotiated settlement. Oh, and these boy. are the Ukrainians on the left, you know uh, the more reasonable ones, I would like to think. But the attitude I'm getting in from Ukraine is no negotiations, no compromise. No giving up an inch of Ukrainian territory. And what I'm hearing from my friends in Russia and on the Russian shows that I still occasionally do, uh, rarely now, of course, because I'm a strong critic of the Russian invasion. Uh, but their line is equally hard and fast and uncompromising. And they. Are st- but it, the thing that I find so interesting is that people I've known for years who I consider to be reasonable are equally adamant and inflexible and supporting uh, the Putin line there, and which makes is, very, is as disturbing to me as the Ukrainians. And I'm seeing the same thing from the Americans, mm-hmm. which is what makes me so pessimistic right now, because there's so little reasonable understanding that we're in a very, very dangerous situation both in terms of China and in terms of Russia, and that the danger of this escalating through a Pelosi trip to Taiwan or more high-MARS attacks against the Russians, uh, I it, 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 it mean, it, this is a real crisis that we're facing now, and we don't have the statesmen on an international scale. We need Putin to reach out to Zelensky. We need negotiations, we need Macron to get back in there and push this again, and Erdogan, and the Israelis, and anybody else uh, who understands how dangerous this situation is. And because eventually we are gonna negotiate, and we are gonna negotiate, and people are gonna have to compromise, and they're not. nobody's gonna get everything they want. Uh, and if this continues in a military fashion, Uh, It's only going to worsen the humanitarian catastrophe that's going on, and it's going to lead to a point that we should be able to anticipate. Uh, I mean, I assume it's going to be something along the line. I wish it had been along the lines of the Minsk II Mm agreements that mm -hmm. had been signed by the Russians and the Ukrainians and the French and the Germans, Uh, and now, I, I, that would have been to me a better outcome than we're going to see. But I don't see the Russians giving up control of the Donbass, right. uh, whether they call it independent or they're talking about referendums in Kherson and others. Uh, and so, um, it, but we're also talking about this counter offensive on the part of the Ukrainians there. Uh, it, it, there's There's not much positive that I see being expressed by anybody right now, uh, although we are seeing cracks. Economically, these sanctions are having bad effects in terms of, well, everywhere. We're looking at Ukraine's GDP is expected to drop 45 to 50 percent this Amazing. year. Amazing, That is mind-boggling. I mean, Russia, now they're talking what, six or eight percent? Uh, Although we're seeing contrary reports, the IMF comes out with reports saying that the sanctions are having little real effect, that uh, inflation seems under control, debt seems under control in Russia. The average Russian is not feeling the impact of these sanctions, but the West keeps saying, well, eventually they will. OK, well, maybe they're right. It came out this report from Yale just a couple of days ago saying that the effect is much more devastating in Russia than is being reported. Well, I'm not in a position to to know which is actually true on that, but it doesn't seem to be working. But it is working in terms of the impact on the Americans and the Europeans. Yeah, it is. Inflation is up very high in Europe, and we're seeing and we know that that they're not being able to stockpile the oil and gas that they need to get through the winter. And this is going to have very bad effects on the Europeans as well as on the Americans. So that, again, there's nothing positive to come out of this. And we're going to need to have new security structures in place in Europe. And we're going to need to recognize that is we might not like what Russia is saying and claiming, but we at least have to negotiate uh, a, a basis that seems to reflect what they consider their existential threats and their red lines, as well as Ukraine's interests as well as Eastern Europe's interests. I mean, everybody has got sees threats and is exaggerating these threats, but there has to be some common basis if we're going to exist as a planet.
0: Dr. Peter Kuznick, thank you for joining us. Dr. Kuznick is a professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University in Washington. He's an expert on 20th century history and the author of many books, including The Untold History of the United States and Beyond the Laboratory, Scientists as Political Activists in 1930s America. You're listening to Political Misfits. We're going to take a short break and come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. Democrats in the Senate wasted no time in working to pass the newly named Schumer-Mansion Inflation Reduction Act. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that he believes the bill can be passed by next week when it would then go to the House for action. What we don't know yet, however, is whether the Senate parliamentarian will actually allow the measure to be considered in what is called reconciliation, that is, part of the budget process. The bill, at 725 pages, would reportedly reduce drug costs, reduce inflation, combat climate change, and revise the corporate tax code. In other news, the city of San Francisco yesterday declared a state of emergency because of the rapid spread of the monkeypox virus and the World Health Organization yesterday urged gay and bisexual men to try to limit their sexual partners until authorities are able to release the monkeypox vaccine. At the same time, though, authorities in Los Angeles are saying pointedly that monkeypox is not a gay disease, and New York health officials are warning that Americans cannot have a repeat of the early days of the HIV-AIDS crisis when the disease was known wrongly as gay cancer. We're joined by Brian Wright. He's a California attorney and former radio talk show host. Brian, always great to have you. Welcome back. Well, good to be on again, John. Brian, let's start with this surprising agreement between Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and West Virginia's Joe Manchin. We discussed the early details yesterday on the show. This looks like it could be a major victory uh, for Joe Biden if it actually happens. Biden really needs a legislative win if the Democrats can pass it as part of the budget process. Do you think that that'll happen? This bill is greatly scaled down from the original version that Joe Manchin rejected, but it's still pretty substantial. What do you think?
2: Well, John, let me first start out by saying Inflation Reduction Act. <laughs> I know, right?
0: I laughed when I read it, too.
2: This is the crazy thing, and it really distresses me about politics in at every level, and that is, they mischaracterize what they're doing in a way to try and get you to buy into it, and then you don't realize what the ultimate effects are. But anyway, uh, as far as this thing in general, what impact it's going to have, yes, it's going to be a win because so far, the way that I view what this administration has been doing, it's been reactive rather than proactive. Mm -hmm. They haven't been able to get any thrust on any of their policies. They haven't been able to get anything through because the even within their own party, they have pushback. So if they can get this through, I think it'll be their first major win in a policy direction. And yes, they can tout, hey, look, we've done something.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's probably right. The latest polls, Brian, show that 75 percent of Democrats don't want to see Joe Biden as the Democratic nominee for president in 2024. If this bill passes, do you think that'll make any difference in those numbers? Less than two years into Joe Biden's term, is it is it already too late for him?
2: Uh, I I don't think that this bill is going to have much impact because I don't really think that in the long run, people make their voting decisions on the basis of policies that were passed in in a particular administration. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people don't actually know a lot about why they cast their votes. And to me, it's more the feeling that they have, how they think uh, the economy is doing, how they think the country is going, that kind of a thing as to whether they are going to support an incumbent or not. Right. And I just don't think that this particular bill. Oh, and by the way, let me mention the uh, the size of this bill. Is over the life of the bill less than one year of military spending.
0: Good point. Yes, it is. Oh,
2: so it's not. It's not a huge thing. Right. It is something. But
0: that's that's a good point. I don't think,
2: I don't think that. Biden can do anything to change people's perception about him, unless inflation were to drop down to 3% or something like that. But uh, Biden comes across as somewhat senile. Yeah. And that issue is going to be the driving issue in this next election, in my opinion.
0: What do you think all of this means for Kamala Harris, Brian? She was a relatively popular figure in California for a a while, at least. She was a San Francisco district attorney. She was attorney general of California. And then she was a U.S. senator. Now, though, her approval ratings are around 25%. I mean, that's just, it's just incredible to me. I, I'm unaware of anybody's approval ratings being around 25%. I mean, like through history, that's, that's not how you win a national election. If, if Joe Biden elects not to run for re-election, what happens to Kamala Harris?
2: Uh, I, I think she's going to fall by the wayside. Um, and I'm not quite sure about your characterization about how popular she was in <laughs> Right. frankly, at these lower-level elected positions, nobody knows who these people are. Yeah. They don't That's go true. out on the campaign trail. You don't see television ads for them. So who's running for attorney general of California? I, I don't know. Yeah. And in California, if you happen to get the Democratic nomination, you're pretty much assured of winning because California is that far Democratic. So – Uh, Frankly, again, I go back to, on a national scale, likability. People's perception are very important in the ultimate result. And ultimately, I think that's why Hillary Clinton lost, because she wasn't likable. Um, Kamala Harris strikes me as being one of the strangest people I have ever seen. And I think that's the perception that many people have. And I don't think there's much she can do about that. So I don't consider her to be a viable candidate. And frankly, I'm kind of surprised that she was even picked to be the vice president.
0: Yeah, uh, I I think so too.
2: I thought I thought Klobuchar would have been a, an excellent choice, but then she had some baggage around the George Floyd thing. And right. It would not be considered, but
0: yeah the the timing of the George Floyd situation was unfortunate for Klobuchar. I agree with you for a long time, I thought Klobuchar was going to be the pick. I really did, uh, and then, you know we, we were talking on the show a week ago about uh about how uh, the choosing of the vice president has changed over the years. It used to be that you chose a vice president or you chose a running mate. Uh, who could balance the ticket. If you were a governor, you chose a senator. If you were a senator, you chose a governor. If you were from the East, you chose someone from the West or the Midwest, the South, whatever, to balance the ticket. And that's just not the case anymore. Now the choice is someone who's not going to do you harm. Um, You know, Joe Biden didn't need to choose somebody from California to win California. He was going to win California anyway. Uh, and I guess he calculated that that Kamala Harris uh, wasn't going to to damage him politically. In fact, I think she has damaged him politically. You remember in the early days of this administration, she was supposed to be, for example, the, the immigration czar. Remember that stupid term? The, the immigration czar. She didn't do anything about immigration. And then the second plan was that she was going to sort of take over foreign policy. She was going to travel around the world and meet with foreign leaders. Well, because the Senate is divided 50-50 and she's already cast more tie-breaking votes than any other vice president in the history of the republic, she has to stick around Washington because these votes pop up all the time. Whether it's for you know somebody named to a federal judgeship or some major thing like this silly, uh, I shouldn't say silly, but this oddly named Schumer Mansion Inflation Reduction Act, Uh, she's got to be in town so she can she can cast these votes. But I think you're right. I think she's the Dan Quayle of this generation. And uh, exactly when when she's when she's finished uh, with the vice presidency, I think that's that's it for her. She'll end up on corporate boards. And she'll end up playing golf, and that's going to be the end of it.
2: Well, you know, when you're talking about the way that the vice president used to be picked, wasn't that more in the days when the party apparatus was in charge of the nominating procedure?
0: Yes, good point.
2: It was to now this uh, primary system where people vote to pick the the candidate, and then the candidate kind of selects his or her vice president?
0: Yes, Yes, you're exactly right.
2: I kind of, uh, they they used to call them the smoke-filled rooms in France. (laughs) Right. I prefer the smoke-filled rooms to the system we currently
0: have. Yeah, I think uh, actually I do too. Crazy as it might sound. Brian, let's talk for a minute about uh, monkeypox. It seems to be spreading like unabated uh, in the country's biggest cities, especially in Washington, New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. There are real concerns that this could become known as a gay disease because it's most easily spread through sexual contact. Uh, But it doesn't seem uh, fatal. In fact, I'm unaware of anybody dying from monkeypox. Does this disease have the potential, do you think, to be a major public health crisis like HIV was? Or are health officials overreacting in the way they describe this thing?
2: Well, it kind of depends on how you define crisis. Is it something that could be widespread? It appears that it could. Um, is it something that's going to be killing people? It does not appear that it will. So t- to me, I liken it more like the common cold mm-hmm. as opposed to COVID that we're currently encountering. Uh, is it something that we w- it, that would be good to stop? Yes, because who wants to get any kind of disease? Right. But is it life-threatening? I, it doesn't appear to be, and... Uh, you know, who knows why people do what they do?
0: Yeah. That's the truth. Um, one last question for you, Brian. I have a California specific question. The Los Angeles Times reported late last night that the head of California's State Water Resources Control Board uh, resigned. He's the senior official working against the state's drought or multiple droughts, one right after the right after the other. He said that he does not believe that Governor Gavin Newsom is willing to pursue the kind of transformational change necessary to save the state from drought disaster. First of all, do you agree with that? And second, what else could be done to confront uh, this this ongoing drought? Besides, you know, doing praying for rain.
2: (laughs) Exactly. You know, the power of prayer. Um, (laughs) It's a difficult question to address from the outside because we cannot see the machinations that go on within government agencies and the governor's office as to why they're doing certain things, what's the ultimate effectiveness of certain things. But looking at what this guy's beef is, he it appears that he thinks that the government is not being heavy-handed enough, which
0: is kind of right. a Thing, take I got the same. I got the same vibe from this.
2: Yeah, that he wants the bureaucracy to say you have to do this, you have to do that, and maybe if you're a politician, you can't always afford to take that kind of a thing because you're always you always have an eye on re-election. Yeah, so it's more trying to get people to go along with you, more trying to convince people they need to do certain things in order to achieve certain goals, as opposed to going in there with your hammer. Yeah. So uh, it, it's difficult to tell. Is Newsom doing what, everything that could be done? Uh, they, they have a policy in place, 27-page policy in place. They've spent, they have a $10 billion budget to allocate to this.
0: Yeah, but then just wait until the water police knock on your door and and, uh, and write you a $600 ticket for watering your, your grass. We're going to have to leave it there. We were happy to be joined from Los Angeles by Brian Wright. He's a California attorney and former radio talk show host. You're listening to Political Misfits. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this brief message. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. There's a lot going on in the world of politics today. In Senate and gubernatorial races across the country, candidates are jockeying for position. That's good for some, of course, and not good for others. We're going to tell you today about some of these close races for U.S. Senate and and, uh, gubernatorial races in the states of Georgia and California and elsewhere. We're going to tell you about some surprises, too, like the Senate races in Missouri, Ohio, and maybe even Colorado. And we'll give you the latest news on the presidential race, even though it's still, sorry, two and a half years away. I'm joined here in the studio by Ray Valencia. Ray is a Sputnik News analyst and the producer of this show. Welcome back. Good to be back and love talking about politics. Oh, my gosh, me too. I've been so excited about this segment because there's so much going on. Uh, we're going to get to Missouri in a minute, and uh, I raise Missouri because the uh, the primary there is is Tuesday, so it's coming right up. But first, there are a few new polls uh, that that came out yesterday and this morning in Georgia for both the gubernatorial and the Senate races that I wanted to tell people about. First, in an Axios poll, Republican Brian Kemp leads Democrat Stacey Abrams forty eight to forty three. Kemp's lead has been remarkably consistent over the past year. He's always just under 50%, which is the magic number. And he's always five percentage points ahead of Stacey Abrams. Uh, in the Senate race, Senator Raphael Warnock leads Herschel Walker 46 to 43. Really close. And a survey USA poll released yesterday shows Warnock leading Walker 48 to 39 less close. That's despite the endorsement this week of Herschel Walker by the border patrol employees union. (laughs) Yeah. So Ray, the funnest part of this whole segment is going to be Pennsylvania. Tell us a little bit about the Pennsylvania Senate race. Lieutenant governor John Fetterman has been trolling the daylights out of TV quack. Mehmet Oz. Uh, Tell us about that. So
3: Pennsylvania, a lot of money flowing in from outside groups uh, Mm -hmm. to out, you know, to upend the Oz campaign. And there's some great memes out right now. This whole, you know, Wizard of Oz, uh, sending him back on the yellow brick road to New Jersey, you know, these type of things. So one of the clever uh, ads that's out right now is this whole Wizard of Oz theme, the Wizard of Lies. And it sets up Oz talking about the miracle drugs that he was promoting on his show. Right. And then at the end
0: of Which the clip... Which It was all quackery. It's all he quackery. Was, he was even fined by the FDA.
3: He was fined by the FDA, <laughs> and he lost a lot of credibility. Uh-huh. I mean, he was, you know, kind of... Promoted by Oprah Winfrey, and he had uh, a lot of viewers, and I think he was kind of well-liked mm-hmm. as, you know, a TV doctor. And then he started doing all this multi-level marketing stuff and the diet pills.
0: Yeah, and, the diet pills that, that burn fat while you sleep. Oh no my exercise God. necessary. Oh, no,
3: all that stuff. And then at the very end of the clip, you hear him testifying before a congressional hearing and they're asking him about diet and exercise and he completely you know, twists himself up in a knot. It's, it, he contradicts himself. So let's roll this clip, The Wizard of Lies. Oh.
0: And now I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. <laughs>
4: it is the new Miracle Berries. Lightning in a bottle. The
0: miracle of the year. It's raspberry keto, C. buckthorn. Alpha cyclodextrin, Green coffee bean extract. Yacon syrup. Red palm oil. Garcidia cambogia. It's a miracle flower. a miracle pill. Brand new miracle. Do you believe that there's a miracle pill out there? There's not a
4: pill that's going to help you long-term lose weight and live your, the best life without diet and exercise.
1: You ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> you may know, think magic is make-believe, but this little being as scientists saying they found the magic weight loss cure for every body type.
0: Oh, my gosh.
3: Isn't that fun? I think that's going to go in the history books. That's fun. That's
0: quite a good one. Now, that, is that from the Fetterman campaign or is it from uh, yeah, another group? From the,
3: that one's from the Fetterman campaign. Yeah. And then there's a lot of other ones that are coming out. There's my favorite one uh-huh. is Stevie Van Zant even got into it. Right. He's been
0: trolling Oz on Twitter. Stevie Van Zant, formerly of uh, the E Street Band, right? Big rock star who then played Silvio on, uh, the, on Sopranos the Sopranos for many years. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and a famous, famous resident of New Jersey. Let's play that clip. Yo, that Stevie VZ here.
4: What are you doing in Pennsylvania? Everybody knows you live in New Jersey and you're just <laughs> using your in-laws address over there. And you do not want to mess around with John Fetterman. Trust me, you're a little out of your league. Nobody wants to see you get embarrassed. So come on back to Jersey where you belong. And, uh, we'll have some
0: fun. Now eh? we'll go to the beach. We'll go surfing. You know, come on. Yo. Yep. You know, the funny thing about that is, in the very beginning of the campaign, when it was when it was clear that Oz was a was a candidate uh, for the nomination to be taken seriously, there were accusations, of course, that he was a carpetbagger, which he is. He's never lived in Pennsylvania. He's always been in either New Jersey or Florida. Um, and what, he's going to run for the Senate uh, from Pennsylvania because the seat was available. Uh, this, this accusation of carpetbagging has legs. It really and, does. Uh, and John Fetterman is beginning to make something out of it.
3: I think it's a more effective campaign uh, strategy, too, to attack candidates that are carpetbagging. I mean, we saw this with Hillary Clinton, right? She just kind of established
0: herself in New York. And and, she did this uh, listening tour. The listening tour. Because she didn't know anything about New York. She didn't know anything about the issues.
3: Exactly. You know, so I don't know. How how long is this going to work for candidates? You know, I uh, I wish it would stop working.
0: Well, I'll I'll add, too, that Dr. Oz is under a lot of pressure from the Republican National Committee, uh, serious pressure. Uh, They refuse to spend money on this race because they say that he's rich and he should be spending his own money uh, on the race. He is rich, like Mm -hmm. nine figures rich. And um, when John Fetterman had his stroke and stopped campaigning, in fact, he still has not gone back out on the campaign trail. He's still recovering from the stroke that he had in May. Uh, Dr. Oz didn't campaign either. He just kind of stopped going out. So either you're serious about this and you want to win this seat or you're not.
3: Kate's to me, he's not because, yeah. wow, and you've got an advantage, like a ground game advantage like that. And don't take right. advantage of it. Yeah, yeah it doesn't make sense. Especially when you have the to money to deploy the troops. Especially. You know?
0: Yeah. What's this third uh, so the, clip that we have here? So the
3: third one is Oz. This is his campaign uh-huh. ad. And I wanted to give some, a little bit of equal time to give you a sense of what, he's, what his message is. So if we could roll Oz for Senate. Sanctuary cities, weak prosecutors, crime skyrocketing, failed liberal policies are making us less safe. Yet John Fetterman wants to release one-third of prisoners and eliminate life sentences for murderers. Emptying our prisons means more hardened criminals on the streets. Incredibly, Fetterman says, get as many folks out as we can. Crazy, dangerous
4: ideas are hurting our communities. We need a change. I'm Doc Roz
0: and I approve this message. Uh, yeah, Fetterman yeah. never said any of that stuff.
3: Yeah, well, it's interesting because <laughs> <laughs> you know the whole Law and Order campaign, right? The yeah. Republicans, because there's been this spike in crime, a lot of gun violence. So this is their argument for it. And, yes. you know, Fetterman was known for being the mayor of what's it Braddock. Brad Bradwick, yeah, Brad Pennsylvania, and, and he lowered the crime. I guess while he was there under his mayorship, mm-hmm. the crime rate went down. So he's running on, you know. Reform. It, it reform, yeah. right? So this is the counter to his reform yeah. campaign.
0: Yeah, he's a yeah. legitimate criminal justice reform candidate. Uh, things like education and job training and stuff like that. He never said anything about ending life in prison. No. And releasing a third Letting of Pennsylvania's prisoners. Yeah. That's outrageous. It is ridiculous. outrageous. Ridiculous. It is outrageous. Yeah, the he never said any of stuff. But, you know, this is a theme, too. It's like, oh, the radical left agenda and weak prosecutors and George Soros backed them, and crime is in the streets. It's like, relax. And the bail reform. And I mean, right. that's a really. You know, we can have a conversation about bail reform. I think it was worth a try. It failed. We need to reimplement bail. Uh but. To but not start to the point about, to where you can't get out of it. Yeah. yeah.
3: Debtors' yeah. prison. Yeah.
0: Totally agree. Uh, The Pennsylvania governor's race, you know, we've we've generally we haven't ignored it, but we haven't spent as much time on it as we have on the Senate race. Uh, You've got uh, Doug Mastriano, the Republican, uh, who is consistently behind in the polls. Josh Shapiro, the state attorney general, is the Democratic nominee. Uh, Mastriano got himself in a little bit of trouble this week, uh, not for anything necessarily that he did. But he's got a good friend by the name of Andrew Torba.
3: Yeah. Who problematic hates character. Jewish people. Yeah. And it's kind of, you know, Shapiro's Jewish and, you know, yeah. not a good idea to be uh, sending, a consult or hiring a consultant. Yeah. That a, goes, known a known white supremacist. Yeah. And there's this rise of the um, evangelical Christian nationalism that we're hearing more about within the Republican Party. And they tend to run under the banner of MAGA, yes. which is so wild to me because, I mean, is Trump religious? I mean, I don't know. No. But anyway, the the Christian nationalists love him. And Andrew Torba, he is the founder and creator of a uh, right-wing um, uh, social media platform called Gab. And he here's a short clip of some of the things that he's been saying on his podcast. So Very if we could roll the Torba clip, please.
1: Take
4: a look at
0: this. So, no, we don't want people who are atheists. We don't want people who are Jewish. This is an explicitly Christian movement because this is an explicitly Christian country. Wow. Yeah, No, it's not. Uh, wow.
3: Yeah. Wow. Now, again, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> Mastriano did not say this. But his audience, this is his audience, right? This is who he hangs out with. And Torbo has been defending his connection with uh, with Mastriano. Mm-hmm. And when you hear Mastriano, I was doing some research, you know, where is he campaigning? What is he doing? And what he's doing is he's going around to the most right-wing churches. Yes. And he's opening for some documentary that's calling into question the, you know, the whole 2020 election. Of course. And yeah, so he's still riding that train.
0: You know, we should say something, too. I I see a a question in the chat. Don't evangelicals love Israel? That is a very good question and a very important one. Can we bring up why they love it so much? Exactly. Let's bring up why they love it so much, because evangelicals want Israel. All of the Jews in the world to return to Israel. So Armageddon comes and Jesus comes back and mm-hmm. it's the rapture and you know, the good, bad, and the ugly are separated from the good Christians right. who all go to heaven. And they want all the hasten, Christians go up Yeah, they yeah. want to hasten the end of the world. That's why they're supporters of Israel. Not not because they have any great love of Israel or oh, it's of, so sinister. Or, of, or Jews. Yeah, yeah, it's very sinister. It's because they want the world to end so they can go to heaven.
3: Oh yeah, I grew up in the 1980s. There was this um, documentary movie that that the churches were like trying to scare teenagers into Christianity. It was called Left Behind.
0: Oh, I remember. Those, Do you remember those this? Books. It was like it yeah. was a book, and was then they made it series. into a
3: movie. Yeah. And at the very end, there was like guillotines and stuff. You know? Oh, it was yeah. crazy. What
0: they don't tell you is the rapture is never mentioned anywhere in the Bible. That's a that's a. That's an invention of American Protestants in the mm-hmm. late 19th century. Yeah, it's a way of, it's a behavioral control. It is. A way to scare people. It is. Yeah. Hey, I want to switch to Ohio briefly. You know, normally I wouldn't pay a whole ton of attention to Ohio, uh, but something's happening there. Democratic Senate candidate Tim Ryan from Youngstown, Ohio, has tied Republican nominee J.D. Vance. In that race, by appealing to union members and to Fox News viewers, Uh, Ryan has always been moderately conservative as a congressman. He's been in Congress for ages. And he's a far more seasoned campaigner than J.D. Vance is. Republicans are complaining that Vance isn't campaigning enough, which is probably true. While Ryan is running all over the state, including to these poor, white, conservative, populist areas. Uh, Yesterday, the billionaire Peter Thiel Mm. gave Vance another $2 million to spend on advertising. But the three latest polls show Vance 42, Ryan 39, Vance 39, Ryan 37, and Ryan 37, Vance 36. That's too close to call in all three of those of those polls. And there are a lot of undecided voters. I'm fascinated by this because I think that most observers and most Democrats just wrote this race off. It's a Republican year. It's a Republican state. And it's become more Republican Ohio, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In the last 10 years, it's been a a remarkable shift. Yeah. Yeah. And that may be because uh, people are leaving the state. And they're moving to places like Florida, Texas, Arizona. Yeah.
3: It gets cold in Ohio in the winter. I understand. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Listen, both my ex-wives are from Ohio. <laughs> I'm never going back to Ohio as long as I live. Anyway, that's, that's a race to watch. It's something that, that I, I'm interested in. I had a conversation last night, too, with a friend of mine, um, Arne Manconi. arn has been on the show a couple of times. Arn was the Green Party's nominee for U.S. Senate. Uh, in the last election in the state of Colorado, Colorado has long been seen as a safe democratic uh, vote for Senate, right? But the latest polls seem to spell trouble for the Democrats. While Colorado's not as volatile as some of these other states that we talk about here, we talk about Arizona and Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, um, It's closer right now than anybody expected. So you've got Senator Mike Bennett. uh, He's being polled at 48%. That's terrible. If you're an incumbent senator, right, up for re-election, and you're only polling at 48%, you've got a problem. This virtually unknown Republican nominee by the name of Joe O'Day comes in at 37%. Keep in mind, this was supposed to be a walk for the Democrats, right? This wasn't even supposed to be a race. Uh, but the, the DNC is not at all focused on this race. And the Republican hasn't spent any money, and still he's got Bennett under, under 50%. So we're going we're gonna to keep our eye on this race. My, my own view is that Colorado is more purple than blue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of Democrats take Colorado for granted.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of places are going to turn more purple because, you know, just housing prices are pushing folks from California oh, yeah. and New York into the Midwest and the South.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, I told uh, I told a good friend of mine a couple of years ago uh, that Virginia was uh, turning purple. Right. It was a solid blue state. Then it was a solid red state after Reagan. And then it kind of turned purple. And he said, oh, Virginia's a blue state. And I said, no, nah, mm-hmm. not not yet
3: not yeah. yet it's maybe
0: northern virginia, northern virginia but if virginia you get is, down into the
3: state a little right. bit that's right it's
0: it's yeah. pretty darn red outside the the dc suburbs oh, absolutely. and so i said you know it's it really is purple well in the last go round uh virginians elected a republican governor a republican lieutenant governor and a republican uh attorney general and the state assembly the house version uh, of the state uh, congress went republican yeah which makes so, it pretty red now and there was a poll this <laughs> week showing that Governor Glenn Youngkin, uh, for the first time, is polling over 50%. Yeah, so Virginia is very much like Colorado. You're right. The, the Democrats tend to take, uh, not take advantage, the, the Democrats tend to, um, to believe that they can count on, on certain states to always fall into line.
3: Yeah, that's and changing.
0: It, that's changing.
3: Yeah, the pandemic... A lot of things have shifted things around. It's going to be a very interesting.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about Missouri. There is all kinds of craziness going on in Missouri. Uh, we've told you previously, we've told our listeners previously, that former Governor Eric Greitens, the one-time golden boy of Missouri politics, who later resigned after beating up his adulterous girlfriend, stripping her naked, tying her to a chair, photographing her and then threatening to release the pictures. If she ever told anybody that they had had an affair, he's been attempting a comeback and he's a former Navy SEAL, good looking guy, you know, Mm -hmm. alpha dog kind of personality. Um, Everybody said, Oh, Greitens is an amazing governor. He's going to be president soon. And then his whole life fell apart. His wife left him when this scandal broke big, big mess. Well, apparently Missouri voters, had forgotten why Greitens was thrown out. Him.
3: Yeah, I don't know how somebody has to resign and then they can run, and it's a high office, governor. Yeah, and then can reinvent himself and just through See, the but name that's recognition. The thing.
0: I'm not sure that he did reinvent himself. No, he, I he, guess reinvent himself would mean he changed, made some changes, but he really didn't, right? But he really he just, didn't. No. What What he did is he decided to try to make a comeback and he, and run for the Senate and. In the beginning, all the pundits said, oh, no, no, this Grayton's isn't serious because, you know, he he abused this woman sexually and then he threatened revenge porn against her and he beat her up and he's a misogynist and he's a masochist. And but Missouri voters apparently just forgot the whole story. So there was a poll two weeks ago showing that the guy is in first place ah, in the Republican primaries. So what happened is The other front runner, the state attorney general, whose name is Eric Schmidt, began running ads saying, look, Greitens is a bad guy. He beat up this woman. He stripped her naked. He tied her down. He took pictures of her. His wife left him. He's a bad guy. And then this last week, Missourians were saying, oh, I forgot about that. So he went from first to third in the polls. He's slipping now just in this past week.
3: Yeah, they're really going after it and he's been trying to get Donald Trump's endorsement.
0: Yes, and 44% of Missourians said that if Donald Trump were to make an endorsement, they would be more likely to vote for that person than for anybody else.
3: So what do you think, Sean? Do you think he's waiting until the last minute to make
0: well, an endorsement or is he just going to stand The primaries down? on Tuesday. If Trump is smart, He would endorse Attorney General Schmidt.
3: Yes. And I think he might because he wants to be on. He wants a
0: winner. Yeah. He wants a winner. Grayton's is not a winner. Now, Grayton's isn't isn't just uh, in the news for what he did two years ago. He's in the news for an ad that he put out recently. Um, And it's quite controversial. So, in you know, with the
3: backdrop of the whole January 6th debacle and everything, you know, and all the violence, uh, let's hang Mike Pence, you know. Yeah. Talk about tone death, right? Greitens runs a campaign ad. Let's go hunt some rhinos.
0: Right. Yeah. Let's play that clip. Let's play it. It's pretty incendiary.
4: I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL. And today we're
0: going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice.
4: Join the MAGA crew. Get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our
2: country.
0: Okay, at... at Base value. We all know what he's doing, but what he's also doing is subtly telling people it's okay to go out there and kill people who you think are not Republican enough.
3: Yeah. And it's radio. Okay. So you're just hearing it. But when you watch the video, he's, he's busting into a door with, you know, a semi-automatic weapon. My God. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like, it's a very violent ad. And this isn't the first one. He he did one where he was like straddling. He's like mounted on some kind of military grade, like tank thing. You know, I
0: mean, it's like, what are you doing at home? I don't get it. My God, <laughs> uh, the, the latest polls and, and this mm-hmm. this poll is from yesterday now shows Eric Schmidt at twenty eight percent and Eric Greitens at twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Very close. Uh, still in the 20s. There are two other Republicans at 13% and 8%. So we're going to have to just wait and see what Donald Trump does this weekend or Monday in yeah, advance of the we primary. We might get
3: like a surprise. But the interesting thing about this race is, is, you know, we're talking about the Republicans. It's a red state. You know, what's the odds of a Democrat winning?
0: Well, uh, until... It, well, let me, let me interrupt you. <laughs> okay. There's, a, there's an important Democrat running. Her name is, um, what's her first name, Trudy? Uh, Trudy. Trudy Bush Valentine. She is the heiress to the Bush beer fortune. Billionaire. And she's self-financing. Uh, so raising money is no problem for her. The thing is, in any normal race in Missouri, she wouldn't stand a chance because, as you just said, Missouri is a red state. But, so, so the last Democrat was right. Claire McCaskill. Claire McCaskill, who barely won by the skin of her teeth. Yeah, and then lost, you know. So
3: because of Eric Greitens being so inflammatory, it has attracted other Republicans into the race. One in particular by the name of John Wood. Now, John Wood is a state attorney in Missouri. He was also a senior investigator for the January 6th hearings. And he's running in Missouri as an independent. He will not be on the August 2nd primary Republican ballot. Right. So what he did is he um, acquired the 10,000 signatures necessary to be placed on the ballot in November. So what the ballot's going to look like is a Republican, and then it's going to be John Wood, independent, and then it's going to be a Democrat. Right. So do the calculus on that. So, Wood said that he's running as a Republican independent. So if elected, he says that he will caucus with the Republicans, but will be open to working on both sides of the aisle, right? So this is what I think we're going to start seeing as a workaround with Trump, is more Republicans joining tickets on the general election through raising the necessary signatures to get on the ballot. And that may make the generals a lot more interesting where you have problematic candidates on the ticket that are like MAGA candidates. So that makes Missouri suddenly a lot more interesting.
0: It really does. And it makes it possible for a Democrat to sneak into that race. I've, I had never heard of Trudy Bush Valentine until she announced no, her candidacy No, I didn't really look race. at the Democrats that seriously because I no, didn't think it you, was Yeah, you really, didn't think they had any, any big chance of winning. But uh, a lot of money is going to be spent in this race beginning on Wednesday uh, when the nominees are finally chosen. It bears watching. Real quickly, we only have a couple of minutes, but I wanted to say real quickly the, the presidential race is decidedly unsettled mm-hmm. now. We've said repeatedly over the last several days that 75%, a massive 75% of Democrats don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee for president in 2024. 54% of Republicans don't want Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024. Trump would be 77 years old. Biden would be 82 years old. It's time for them to move on.
3: And that's what voters are saying.
0: Well, and they're going to have a lot to choose from. You know, mm-hmm. we all know that Ron DeSantis is a likely candidate. Of course, he has to win re-election. He doesn't have to, but he's got to face re-election in November before he can announce his candidacy for president. And there are others. Uh, Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State and former CIA director, has said that uh, he's interested in running. Uh, Former Vice President Mike Pence, former Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley, uh, Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Marco Rubio, um, maybe even uh, scaredy cat Josh Hawley. Uh, who I don't know. I would if I were Josh Hawley, I'd be too humiliated to even have my oh, name man. mentioned just, as a presidential just bump candidate. Your way over yeah, over that's there. just me. Among yeah. Democrats, the names most often mentioned are California Governor Gavin Newsom and Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. If Biden doesn't run, expect another dozen Democrats mm-hmm, to jump into to, it to show up. It's early, yeah. of course, and a million different things could change between now and when people start uh, making their announcements. But this race bears close watching on both sides because we could see a repeat of what happened in 1968. What happened in 1968 is you had an, you had an incumbent Democrat who was, was unpopular because of the war, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he intended to run for reelection, but a left-wing senator uh, uh, ran against him in the New Hampshire primary. Senator Eugene McCarthy, and, uh, and got 40%. And when Johnson saw that as an incumbent president, he could only get 60% in New Hampshire, he just quit. He just quit, and he said, I will not be a candidate for president in 1968. The Republicans nominated Richard Nixon. The Democrats were going to nominate Robert Kennedy, who was assassinated the night of the California primary. They ended up nominating Vice President Hubert Humphrey, And then George Wallace, the governor of Alabama, who decided he didn't like either the Republicans or the Democrats, ran as an independent. And we ended up with a split electorate and and Richard Nixon became president of the United States. So crazy things have happened in the past. And I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that happen
3: again. Because I remember when Trump was first running and I was talking to folks and I said, you know, he just reminds me so much of George Wallace.
0: Yeah. It's that populism. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit scary. Well, we're going to leave it there. We were happy to be joined by Ray Valencia here in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Ray is a Sputnik news analyst and the producer of this show. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. NFL minicamp has begun, and as teams begin workouts, fans focus on quarterback controversies, and the Washington Commanders, or whatever they're calling themselves, focus on getting rid of their owner. The Cleveland Browns are trying to anticipate what will happen to their star quarterback, Deshaun Watson. He's been accused of sexual assault by, get this, 25 different women. It sounds like this young man has a problem. He will be suspended, of course, but we don't know for how long, and it doesn't seem like Browns fans really care. In Washington, fans are more disgusted by owner Daniel Snyder's behavior. Fifteen female former employees of the Commanders are accusing Snyder of sexual harassment and demeaning behavior. We're joined by political analyst and sports fan Brian Doyle, Brian has served as Assignments Editor at Time Magazine and as Deputy Press Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome back, Brian.
4: Thank you very much, John. Good to be with you.
0: Good to have you. Um, I have to ask what might seem like an obvious question. Did the NFL learn nothing from Ray Carruth, the former Carolina Panthers wide receiver who murdered his pregnant girlfriend? From Ray Rice, who beat his fiancee in an elevator and was filmed doing it. From Jameis Winston, who had to settle multiple lawsuits from women who accused him of sexual assault. Even Ben Roethlisberger was suspended for four games for lewd behavior with a woman. Now the NFL is dealing with Deshaun Watson like it's the first time they've ever had to encounter any football player accused of sexual misconduct. What is the NFL's problem, do you think? Why isn't there a policy to address these issues?
4: Well allegedly there is a policy. <laughs> and um, you know, I, I remember particularly after the Ray Rice incident that uh, Commissioner Goodell, you know, said, Oh, we're you know, we take we didn't take it seriously enough, blah 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 blah, you know, blah blah blah. And that rings pretty much the end of it. Uh, but this even preceded the Ray Rice incident with regard to play. Right. Gary Richardson, who was the owner of the Carolina Panthers, basically was forced out by the other owners um, for sexual harassment. Um, and I, I am, you know, someone who lives in the D.C. area, Washington, D.C. area. I'm very curious as to what the league will do with regard to Daniel Snyder. Um, while he's never been fully accused of harassment, the idea that he claims he didn't know, uh, that this, Atmosphere of harassment permeated the then Washington Redskins now Commanders organization because uh, it would seem a little duplicitous. But then again, if you watch Goodell's um, testimony for the committee in, in Congress uh, that Carol Maloney chairs, you know why he gets paid sixty million a year from the owners. He basically said nothing. And he's he's and he's truly the son of a former politician, Charlie Goodell, the senator, late senator from New York. Yes. Um, he knows how to obfuscate. He knows how to talk around it. And you also, now, in the Watson case, this is interesting because, you know, again, everybody's innocent until proven guilty. Okay? Fair enough. Um, but the evidence seems to be so powerfully overwhelming. I, I feel sorry for him in many ways. He clearly has a problem. Uh, he's a great athlete. Uh, his life story is really, you know, abject poverty. He grew up in a, a Habitat for Humanity house, and when he was at, at Clemson, he uh, and he convinced his teammates, which is continued to this day by Dabo Swinney and the and the folks at Clemson, to for two weeks a year, all the players go and help build a house.
0: Wow, I didn't know that.
4: Habitat, yes. Uh, so it's it's rather a sad situation. That said, lest we forget the Robert Kraft
0: mm-hmm.
4: in Florida. Now, eventually, I believe, if memory serves me, those charges were finally dropped.
0: Correct. They were dropped. But,
4: but at the same time, you know, if Watson makes settlements with all these accusers, tell me the difference. Everything's dropped.
0: Yeah. over. Yes.
4: So uh, this, is, this is going to be a very, very interesting uh, decision that the NFL makes and the commissioner um, fairly soon, one would think.
0: I would think so. One of the things that's interesting to me is that the, the Cleveland Browns acquired Deshaun Watson after the accusations um, against him were made public. The guy is incredibly talented, and the Browns stink, so I understand the need to acquire talent. Uh, but the attitude in the NFL, we don't care what he does so long as he puts up the numbers. Just let him get past his suspension. Um, I I just don't understand that attitude. You know, it seemed when when Roethlisberger got himself in trouble in Pittsburgh, he was never accused of any crime. He was accused of inappropriate behavior at a party, and was suspended. Well, the suspension was four to six weeks, and they were going to decide at week four whether he could come back based on on his uh, based on his uh, behavior, and so they let him come back after four. And I thought, okay, so they're getting serious about this kind of thing. And then you know, Deshaun Watson, twenty five women say he's uh, he's assaulted them, and and he's allowed in minicamp, and and he's going to work out until the suspension comes down. It just sounds crazy to me
4: i think I think what this is a guess, but i i if you followed Goodell in the past, I think he's gonna let the whole legal thing play out, aha uh-huh. the lawyers, and then at that point you know make a decision i, I don't know i think he's talked to Watson already i you know he'll be talking to him again uh and his attorneys uh and then make some kind of a decision at that yeah point. yeah the rosssellsberg i clearly remember the rosssellsbergs uh, case and um and his suspension and so forth. But I I just think they're, they're between a rock and a hard play.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. That was the first time I had ever heard the term sausage party. He said that a bunch of teammates had gone to a sausage party, he had been drinking, and he pulled some girl into a bathroom and said something or did something or coerced her into doing something. I don't exactly remember now. And, and people were, you know, justifiably appalled that he would do something like this. And there was punishment for it. So I, I, I listen, I'm a Steelers fan all my life. I love Ben Roethlisberger. But behavior like that is just clearly wrong. It's got to come to an end. And if it's not ending, then people have to have to be punished for it. So let me ask you about Dan Snyder. I found this, uh, I found this op-ed From about a year ago, it was a year ago, June, published in the USA Today, saying that Washington commander's owner, owner, rather, Daniel Snyder, is no longer an embarrassment for the NFL. He's become a liability to the NFL. It says Snyder has been accused of fostering a culture of sexual harassment and inappropriate behavior. Well, apparently that hasn't changed since the news broke a year ago. Why do you think the NFL hasn't acted against him? As you said, in the case of the Carolina Panthers, they forced the ownership out. Why have they not done that with Snyder? God knows, there's not a single uh, Commanders fan in Washington that would lose a moment's sleep if Snyder were to be ousted.
4: Well, I I think part of that is that uh, the you know he was going to make sure that he was going to investigate them, let the Commanders investigate them.
0: Exactly right.
4: Well, the NFL said, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. We'll investigate. Mm-hmm. I think when that one is fully complete, and I don't know how far along it is, I would assume there's been enough time that they've made headway on it. Uh, again, Goodell is going to make some type of decision or talk to the other owners. Um, you know, about two or three years ago, maybe not even that long ago, Sports Illustrated did a, 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 a poll where they talked to all the owners. Ah. Who would the least influential owner in the NFL. And it was almost, it was virtually unanimous with Snyder all the way. Wow. He has, he's considered a buffoon by the other owners in many ways. Um, and if you look at you know his his fascination with stardom, oh, yes, let's sign Deion Sanders uh, about two years before the end of his career for <laughs> the million Dollars, uh, don't worry about the salary cap. I'll pay it. I mean, he he has this bizarre fascination with this, and he would not listen to, you know, nobody it coaches. And he, he, one of the first things he did when he took over was he cut the scouting.
0: Yeah, of and, all things.
4: And oh. blood—that's the, the the plasma that makes your team go.
0: It is, and the and the Commanders, the Redskins, have been uh, terrible ever since he became owner. You know, when Jack Kent Cook was the owner, uh, Jack Kent Cook, who, you know, may have been an unpopular jerk, but was very well regarded as an owner, um, when he had the team, they were winning multiple Super Bowls and, uh, you know, put together a a roster of talent that was just, you know, the envy of the league. And then when Snyder bought the team, that was the end of it.
4: Well, this is... If, if you look at these successful franchises in the history of the league and certainly within the last 40, 50 years, the Steelers, New England, um, even, even the old lines that have had uh, the Giants, the 49ers, what's the thing they had? They had very little turnover and they had stable le- leadership yes. that lets the professionals do their job. Absolutely. have been a nice guy. And he certainly wasn't. But he hired Bobby Bethard, let Bethard hire the coach. Out, do your job. If you got a problem, come to me.
0: You're absolutely right.
4: And this, you know, the Roonies have done that for years. The Marers in New York, crafting in New England. You know, Belichick basically runs the show. Uh, and it's just the way it's done it, to be successful. Uh, Green Bay has gotten back to that. Yes. You know, three coaches: McCarthy and Holmgren before that, and now Lafleur. And you you have Mark Murphy, who used to play here for Washington, who's a fabulous uh, GM and president, actually the president. Uh, these are experienced people who know what they're doing, and they have their own philosophy. Yeah, we're not a big market. We may develop... But the, the Steelers is a perfect example, and you should know this. They draft well. They develop their players, reach for that big contract. Some they'll keep. Others they'll let go. That's right. Confidence, they can find... Great athletes to, to replace
0: them. Absolutely right. And they've been doing it for decades. Yes. Yeah, and, and they've, only had, they've only had three head coaches Correct. since like 1969, I think. Chuck Knoll uh, was hired in 69, and it's just been, you know, three Super Bowl winning coaches ever since.
4: It's consistency, little turnover, paying your people, and letting them do their job.
0: That's right. One last question for you. Snyder was subpoenaed to testify before the House Oversight Committee. Uh, and yesterday, behind closed doors, this was not open to the public, he testified for 10 and a half hours. The testimony, um, we, we frankly don't know what the content was, but a statement from the committee after he finished speaking at 6.30 last night was pointed. The committee said, quote, We are continuing our investigation into the commander's toxic work environment and its discrimination against women, as well as Snyder's efforts to interfere with the NFL's internal investigation without hiding behind non-disclosure or other confidentiality agreements, unquote. That is harsh. How do you think this plays out? I mean, you, you are so wildly unpopular that Congress has to get involved to investigate you. At what point do you think the NFL just says enough is enough and Snyder's got to go?
4: I feel like Major League Baseball has this uh, free monopoly. They, they basically are a monopoly. Though. Yes. And uh, Congress has, has decided maybe we should take a look at this, probably. particularly when, you know, and it's not just the Washington team, you know, as you say, other organizations, uh, sadly, Houston with Deshaun Watson and, who the hell knows how many other teams maybe have problems internally that we don't even know of. And they're basically saying it's like OSHA. If you have a dangerous work environment, you know, you better correct. It. Yeah. It yeah. Uh, or you're going to have problems. And I, they always get dangle the monopoly thing over their head if they don't do it. In Snyder's case, I mean, it's so egregious because there's evidence that he hired private investigators to look at these people to try to, you know, basically intimidate them, to tell them, you know, keep your mouth shut. Uh, maybe not. No, I'm paraphrasing, of course. Uh, but uh, the levels of intimidation. So it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out of this. And the, the committee has the authority. You know, he wanted this behind closed doors. He did not want this public. You know, he, he worked it out with his lawyers. But they still have the right to release those transcripts.
0: Yeah, they absolutely do. They can do whatever they want.
4: He can be, you know, it's not going to look good for
0: him. Totally agree. Well, we are going to leave it there. Thank you for joining us, Brian Doyle. Brian is a political analyst and a sports fan. He has served as the assignments editor at Time Magazine and as deputy press secretary at DHS. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou. It's Friday, and that means it's time for News of the Weird, where we tell you about some of the more offbeat stories in the news. You know, there were so many this week that I had to actually be selective. Um, usually I have to flail around and find something that to me is funny, because uh, a lot of it is weird but not funny. I like to have the combination of the two. So the first one is in Detroit. Bianca Chambers, right, was not going to leave the sleuthing to the Detroit police after her Mercedes-Benz was stolen. So, listen, I, my Vespa, I love that thing like it's a child of mine, and I hunted all over the neighborhood before the cops finally found it. But anyway, this poor woman, Bianca Chambers, somebody stole her Mercedes-Benz in Detroit. So using social media tips, she tracked her car all over the city. But each time she would call 911, police would arrive too late to nab the thief. So last week, she got lucky. A man who was driving her car parked and went in to get his dreadlocks twisted. I didn't know that was a thing. But he went into this shop to get his dreadlocks twisted, and she pounced. Fox News 2 Detroit reports that she walked into the barbershop and confronted him. He denied stealing the car, but she tackled him by his yanking him to the floor by his dreadlocks. And the other customers in the barbershop subdued him. They sat on him while she went outside and slashed her own tires. So he wouldn't be able to get away. So he wouldn't be able to get away. She says, I thought he was going to take off, and I didn't know how long it was going to take for the police to pull up. You're just the dumbest criminal, that's all. You joyriding in my car like nobody was going to see you, she told the perp. Police said the man has a history of car theft and was charged again with car theft. Good for her, man. That's man, some guts right there. That is kind of bad. Wow. Man. <laughs> You know, I remember once when I was a kid, I was, I was 17 years old. I was working at Kroger's, the, the big grocery store, right? And my brother, who was 15 at the time, came to visit me while I was working. And he, he brought his new, brand new BMX off-road bike that he had worked so hard to save the money for. And he parked it outside, went in, found me and said, I just got my new bike, come out and look at it. I came out, bike's gone. He owned it for like two hours. In the distance, we see some kid riding it. So we run over. My brother tackles this kid, holds him down on the ground. And then as my brother is pummeling him, gets the kid's shoes off and throws one shoe on the right side of the road and the other shoe on the (laughs) left side of the road. But we lived in the area was like really marshy and swampy. We would get these water birds and you know storks and cranes and stuff, right? right? Herons all the time. I don't even know what happened to that kid. We we lit him up pretty good. Anyway, number two, Jim Batan, fifty seven of West Lynn, Oregon, figured out the way to pay off his one hundred and ten thousand dollar backyard luxury swimming pool. (laughs) Since September twenty twenty, Batan has hosted nine thousand swimmers through an app called Swimply. Oh, I've heard of this app. i never heard of it. Oh, this is a thing, John. He made $177,000 oh, yeah. so far this summer.
3: Definitely. People rent out their pools. If you have a pool, yeah. if you're fortunate enough to have a pool, they put, it's like an Airbnb. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's like Airbnb, they but for pools. They put these beautiful
0: pictures up of a pool and you can spend up to like $80, $90 an hour. Oh my God. It, it says here, He he charges seventy dollars an hour for five people. There's a waiting list, and a very high return rate. So, what town is he in again? West Lynn, Oregon. Oregon, huh? Nine thousand swimmers have paid him $177,000. He says he admits that there's more to the job than just providing towels. He and his wife spend 12 to 14 hours a week managing bookings and doing maintenance. He said, I love the income, but I generally caution people away from doing this. It takes a lot of time to learn about things like pool chemistry and maintenance. I look at my pool chemicals probably five to 10 times a day, but at $70 an hour for five people, it's worth it.
3: Well, for $70 an hour, can't you just hire a guy and have him come out there and, you seriously, know, Seriously, yeah. And that would finance a pool. You know, it's like well, what it, you think it, about it. Did. It did. In
0: fact, that was the original um, idea. He spent $110,000 on a pool. I mean, that has to be one nice pool, right? No,
3: no, no. Let me just tell you, I'm from California where everybody uh-huh. has a pool. I moved out here. I wanted to put a pool in our yard uh-huh. because I'm from California. The lowest, the cheapest pool is like 150 grand. Are you kidding? And you me? you can't even get somebody out in your yard to build the thing. Are so you kidding? I put me? in an endless pool, one of those like yeah. swimmers that right. have the. And I, I'm thinking of doing Swimbly, you know, because there's people that want to work out. I've got the nice deck out there.
0: So what happens? People just like show up at your backyard.
3: Yeah. So they show up at your backyard. You offer them a towel. We have a little bathroom outside, and they, you book just through Airbnb, like an Airbnb. Yeah, I put a little bathroom outside, but you put in a just an add-on like an Airbnb. It's called Swimbly, and people will reserve. Yeah.
0: You know, I wonder if my sister's listening to the show right now. She probably isn't, but she and her husband just put in a brand new pool. It's not just a pool, they live in New Hampshire, but it's a pool complex, right? There's a dressing room, there's a bar. Oh, yeah. um, There's an outdoor TV. I'm ready. The pool has its own Wi Fi.
3: It's (laughs) crazy. Oh, she can make
0: bank. Oh, yeah. I never heard of this thing until last night. I'm going to, I got to tell her about it. Yeah, that's. That's pretty. You could get the
3: kids through college on
0: that. Uh, TV, <laughs> channel two in Pittsburgh. It's the station I grew up watching. They reported last week that attorney Lauren Varnado, um, an attorney from Pittsburgh, was defending a Pittsburgh-based corporation in a courtroom in New Martinsville, West Virginia. Um, she is accusing the judge. This is Judge David W. Hummel Jr of pulling out a Colt forty-five revolver out from under his robes during the proceedings. Vernado alleges that Hummel pointed the gun, quote, in a waving motion like he was scanning, first at the defense table, and then he placed the gun on the bench and slowly turned it to make sure that the barrel was pointed at her. She says because of the trial's contentious nature, Farnado had her own security detail, but the judge wouldn't allow them into the r- courtroom saying my gun is bigger than theirs. <laughs> oh Farnado said she's working with the FBI and the West Virginia judicial investigation committee. Uh, quote, he cannot stay on the bench period unquote. I got to tell you, I've, as you can see from my dress shirt today, I've spent a lot of time in courtrooms over the last several years. This story does not surprise me one iota, not at all. Um, Judges think they can get away with anything. And I'll tell you a quick story. There was a young girl, 16 years old, whose case was being heard before my custody situation. And she had been arrested for shoplifting. She got caught shoplifting something, makeup, something. And this girl was from a very poor neighborhood in Washington, D.C. She was using a borrowed laptop to participate remotely. She was using her attorney's laptop. And the way the laptop was open on the screen that we could see in the courtroom and the screen that the judge was looking at, you could only see this girl's head from her forehead up. So all she needed to do was pull the screen down an inch or two inches to get her face. The judge flipped out like a crazy person screaming that this girl was showing disrespect to the court, which is what they always call themselves the court. And she ordered that she be held in contempt of court for 24 hours in jail. This is, she's a child. And She doesn't have any experience with a computer. She doesn't know how to use a computer. She didn't pay attention at her own little picture-in-picture to see that only her forehead was showing. This poor kid was held in contempt, of course. It really is outrageous. Well, we are starting to run short on time. I will tell you that I'm going to be very happy to see uh, Michelle back. I, I, hope, I she's hope she's I hope she's had a great time the at the beach.
3: Yeah. Great time but with her family. Her. It's time to come back, I know.
0: I know she's been posting on Facebook that she's been having a great time. Oh, that's good. But, uh, but I, I'm looking forward to her getting back here. Yeah, that's going to be nice. So I'd like to also thank all of our guests today. We had uh, Professor Peter Kuznick. We had Brian Wright. You, of course, Ray Valencia, Brian Doyle. Thanks to our engineers and to everybody here at Sputnik News. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. Thank you so much and bye-bye. Bye-bye.